Good evening. Last night I was at a party and a friend of mine said to me that she remembers my saying something at a presentation a few years back that I gave in West Vancouver. Apparently I said to the audience, do you have a problem with same sex? Well, so do I. It's the same sex over and over and over again. Well, hopefully tonight we're going to shake things up here on the CKNW Sunday Night Sex Show, the show where we educate men and women about sexual health, how it relates to overall health, making your relationships the best they can be. Speaking of same sex, I'm very happy to hear that same-sex marriage has finally been approved in all 50 states in America. Justice has been served, and I think people have a right to live the way they want to and love those who they choose. I did laugh when some Americans who were against uh, this uh, the Supreme Court ruling um, saying that they were going to come to Canada. Well, we approved that a long time ago. I mean, but anyway, Americans don't even really know where Canada is. Um, so a little geography lesson because there's no one else in the world sometimes. I can say that because I am American as well. I am also your hosting person of the CKNW Sunday Night Sex Show. I am Maureen. I'm a registered nurse, sex therapist, blogger. You can follow me on Twitter at back the number two, the bedroom. You can tweet me anything you like. You can uh, email me sex talk at cknw.com. I get a lot of emails from you all uh, telling me sometimes you tell me when you're listening to the show and that's nice to hear as well. You can also download the free app and listen on the podcast. Uh, anyway, so it's great to be here with you tonight. Yesterday I was out in Cloverdale at the Cloverdale Fairgrounds in full cowgirl mode, of course, uh, speaking about aging gracefully, which is not easy. Um, but one of the uh, people in the audience said, uh, made a comment, and he said, you know, we enjoyed the show, and, and he said that I have such great guests on the show, and and that is definitely true tonight. Um, I have a number of guests here in the studio with me tonight. Joining me uh, as a return guest and a regular health contributor to this show is Dr. John Weisler. He's a cardiologist in practice in North Vancouver. He is the head of the division consultant to pro sports teams and also a regular health contributor here. So I'm glad to have him here. We're going to be talking about that anesthesiologist who trashed the patient. And I'm going to share a story of my own uh, that happened to me. Maybe I have a lawsuit. Um, and we're also going to talk about estrogen and weight gain and the perimenopausal years and the menopausal years and, and what are really the risk factors for women around cardiovascular disease. Johanna is a personal trainer and a pre- and postnatal fitness instructor, and she's also joining me here in the studio tonight. We're going to talk a little bit about a uh, little bit about pregnancy and some of the terminology that has changed, and then also about the importance of pre- and postnatal fitness. And John Newenberg is a business and executive coach, and he's here tonight to share a very personal and poignant uh, story with you tonight. So I, I welcome you all, and I also welcome back Jordan. Hello, Jordan. Jordan, the fabulous tech producer. Great to see you again. Hey, Maureen. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm good. You love being on air. <laughs> Not really. Much. I know, but you just do such a great job, so I'm really happy to see you back here. Anyway, thanks so much. Uh, so the first story, you know, you never think sex is in the news, but it is. Everything's related to sex. And uh, this story is a bit of a reach, uh, but uh, nonetheless, there was a, did you hear about the anesthesiologist who trashed her sedated patient? She ended up losing her job. So Dr. John Weisler is here to um, uh, weigh in on this a little bit because he's a doctor and I'm a nurse. And so these things, you know, you know doctors and nurses aren't perfect, are we not? We're all human. We yeah, are human beings, sure. absolutely. And, um, you know, there's a few myths about being in hospital. One is that it's sterile. That one always kills me because it's probably the grossest place mm -hmm. you can go to. Probably the most bugs you could find. Exactly. <laughs> and that uh, all nurses are nice. 
Yeah, I mean, most of them are. But, uh, yeah, I mean, think? Oh. You know, they're all pretty and good. Most nurses are nice to each other. Uh, not, not not always. Yeah. Not necessarily. Not, not so much, yeah. Uh, but, from I mean, a bit closer, Dr. Weisler. Okay. Oh, sorry. There we go. Sorry <laughs> We're getting that. a little... <laughs> We're getting warm and fuzzy here on the sex show. Uh, well, you know, they can be... There's bullying and nursing. That happens. And Yeah. I mean, the um, healthcare is a very stressful field. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of odd behavior, sometimes bullying or hostility from, you know, one staff member to another, whether it's physician to nurse, physician to physician, uh, what have you. And then, um, you know, we all try to find... Humor in stressful situations, and certainly medical procedures can be stressful. But what went on with this one particular item in the news was really, you know, grossly inappropriate. It went well beyond sort of the line, if you will, or the bounds. I think it did, and it actually went beyond even what happened to me some years ago. So, you know, I don't have a lot of time, and I like to really take in every aspect of life and enjoy it all. So, I was needing a procedure, a bronchoscopy to, or the tube was going to go down my throat anyway. And so I said, just page me. And because, you know, when I was rushing, I was actually working, and so it was the time of pagers. And when I got down there in a rush, they were a little bit late, and they said, you know, you can either have the uh, syrup, the anesthetic syrup, or you can have the injection. But if you take the injection, you're not going to be able to drive for 24 hours. And I really don't like to be shut down for 24 hours, so I I took the syrup. And it was around the time of Bill Clinton and and Monica Lewinsky, those days, the Oval Office days. And so so I um, decided to take the syrup, and then the doctor came in and he said, what have you done? You've given her the syrup? And he said to me, spit it out. You're not having that. You're having the sedation. And so I, I spat it out because I'm a good girl and he gave me the sedation. But he started the procedure before the medication had taken effect. So um, I, th- I think I had a uh, gastroscopy. I think that's what it was. So a scope down um, looking into my stomach for some reason or another. Anyway, and um, so he started and I was... Uh, you know, having a lot of trouble having that passed down and and I was kind of barely out of it and it was killing me and and it was really painful and and apparently he said I stopped breathing and he kept saying, breathe, breathe and I was saying to him with this tube in my mouth, I am breathing, I am breathing. (laughs) And uh, so anyway, finally they do the procedure and all of a sudden it's kind of over and the medication has taken effect. So now I cannot move but I can hear everything that they are saying and they are actually referring to, you know, I wonder what they were saying, making comments like, I wonder what she would be like in the Oval Office. She's no Monica Lewinsky. These are the comments that the staff was making. I, of course, John, wanted to fight back in my sedated state (laughs) and say, you know nothing about me. (laughs) And look at me. I'm hosting a sex show today. (laughs) Flaming red, but nonetheless. And, you know, (laughs) it was a little bit humorous. Anyway, he came out and the point I wanted to make was uh, I was breathing. And he said, well, why were you turning blue? So (laughs) anyway, I never made any mention of the comments that they made or let them know that I'd heard them all. But uh, that does happen. Wow, that's yeah, that's uh, must have been, I don't know, unpleasant to hear. I realize you're not what you expect from your doctors, for <laughs> no, sure. No, it know. was the staff. I don't actually yeah. think it was the doctor. It was, it was really the staff, the staff yeah. around it. But um, yeah, the I mean, team. there yeah. was, you know, I have to say, like, I kind of removed myself from it and thought, you know, I mean, it was in a way very hilarious, you yeah. know, on, on some level, not, um, you know. 
But, but I mean, it's, it's so important uh, in healthcare that, you know, we gain as practitioners, we gain the patient's trust. And, you know, I mean, maybe that example, you were able to sort of see past it, but patients that didn't know as much, you know, it might have been more serious for oh. sure. I do um, a procedure called transesophageal echo where it's, it's similar to a gastroscopy. I place a, a ultrasound probe down into the patient's esophagus and look at their heart. And, you know, we're, we're pretty careful what we say for that reason. You know, we, we, I mean, we don't really know the patients. I, I guess in this case, probably the doctor maybe knew you. And the they all knew me. But, uh, but <laughs> with most patients, we don't have that understanding. Absolutely, yes. And so may, they may have, um, you know, given me a hard time. But they had absolutely no idea that I could hear sure. all of that, right? But, you know, I, I have to say I appreciated their sense of humor a little bit. I mean, it was on, you know, on many levels. Yeah. It was a great little Saturday Night Live skit. Anyway, I was not harmed by it in any way. But I think this anesthesiologist, I think um, the one in the news, did um, trash that sedated patient yeah. and actually said some really defamatory and derogatory comments um, about sexually transmitted infections and about, you know, him having to man up and, yep. and um, I met you for five minutes and that, you know, you had to man up. So it was really more of a personal attack. Yeah. The comments were, you know, really quite degrading in that example for sure. You they know, certainly and, and were. could certainly understand why the patient would have been so upset. Absolutely. And, but I, I often wonder, you know, I think, you know, uh, you've got to walk in somebody else's shoes. And so what is that? What was that anesthesiologist yeah. going through? You know, was there some trouble in her life? I mean, was was there a situation? Is there a, a, a medical diagnosis that, um, you know, I don't I don't want to diagnose everybody. But, you know, what uh, it's it's really not uh, uh, synergistic with the, you know, most uh, physicians and yep. the type of physician, you know, the type yep. of person it's, that becomes a physician. It's, it's not the norm. And, uh, you know, I, I think your comment is fair for sure that, uh, you know, when, when you're a professional in that sort of field, you do get other issues. But uh, at the same time, you've got to uh, put them aside, I guess, at some point. You know what I mean? You have to, you have to focus on the patient. You and, do. Uh, I, I suppose... Um, yeah, I, sup- I think that just she went too far. Basically. I, you know absolutely. I mean? She went yeah. far, much too far. And um, hopefully she'll um, recover from that herself because mm-hmm. I, I'm sure she's experiencing a lot of pain herself. Well, I think she's moved to a new job. Oh, did you get yeah, a job she's, already? She's, or she's, she's, she's left, left that the job state. Anyways. I know yeah, she left, left the, the state. state. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Um, I would as well. And the patient was awarded $500,000 anyway uh, in yeah. the U.S., so uh, that doesn't happen here. But uh, nonetheless, okay, so that wasn't exactly why I invited you here tonight. <laughs> I invited you to talk about estrogen and um, not estrogen in men, in men who gain a lot of weight, but more estrogen in women, the dangers of estrogen, cardiovascular risk, what are – I want to – run some questions by you that some patients have uh, to me about their fears around estrogen when they seem to have other risk factors they don't really care that much about. Anyway, so when I return, we'll be talking about that. I am Maureen McGrath, and stay with me. You're listening to the CKNW Sunday Night Sex Show. Welcome back. Thanks for staying with me. I'm Maureen McGrath. I am hosting this Sunday night sex show here at CKNW. It's my honor to come to you every single Sunday night. It's something I actually thoroughly enjoy. I love education. I'm passionate about it. Everything is related to sex, except for sex, of course. That's about power, as we all know. Um, So all of the subjects tonight uh, that we're going to be talking about relate to that as well. And I have Dr. John Weisler here. He's a cardiologist. 
and a consultant to a lot of sports teams here in British Columbia. And he's here to talk to me about cardiovascular disease as it relates to estrogen because I uh, see a lot of patients who have who are in perimenopause, the years leading up to menopause, menopause and postmenopause. And a lot of the women, anyway, thank you for staying here. And actually, thank you for coming into the studio tonight, Dr. Weiser. Thanks always, for having me. <laughs> always great to have you here with uh, a bastion of knowledge. And um, so... Uh, I see so many women with perimenopausal symptoms, and, and one of the classic symptoms is vaginal dryness or vaginal atrophy. That's when the estrogen receptors decrease in the vagina, and they lead to vaginal dryness. That may lead to painful sex. It may lead to low sexual desire. They may have thin, watery discharge, postquital bleeding. They are nervous. Some of them who have vaginal atrophy may need estrogen, low-dose localized estrogen therapy, um, some can get away with a personal moisturizer if they only have vaginal dryness, so like an ovule like Repigyne or Dr. Uaqua. But many will need low-dose localized estrogen, and they are afraid to take it. Now, can you weigh in on that a little bit? I think the, you know, the risks of low-dose localized <laughs> estrogen are particularly small. It's, it's generally you know, viewed as, as by us in the cardiovascular community as being a very low-risk intervention. You know, this whole idea, Maureen, came about, of course, because there used to be a lot of interest in, you know, using estrogen and progesterone supplements into much later in life for women because you, there was less lower quality data that suggested that that would be beneficial, maybe reduce heart disease risk and uh, avoid fractures and do a bunch of other things. And then there were major trials published. The Women's Health Initiative was one of them that showed that that really wasn't true. I think it is true for fractures, but in terms of cardiovascular disease, um, estrogen and progesterone didn't actually have a protective effect. And with combination therapy, which you need if you have a uterus, and in, in many cases, if you're taking uh, oral supplements, uh, there's actually harmful. But the risk arm, it's important for people to remember that we don't recommend it for that purpose anymore, but hormone replacement is still reasonable for a you know brief duration of time, mm-hmm. a year or two years, to help with menopausal symptoms, both you know the, the vasomotor uh, symptoms, the hot flashes, and, and vaginal dryness and, and others, uh, and that the risk um, in even used orally is still felt to be pretty small for a, you know, for a brief period of time like that, for a year or two, uh, or even a bit longer in, in some women. Um, and then for localized estrogen therapy, whether it's the creams or a, a transdermal patch, the risk is felt to be particularly small. I mean, we're talking way less than a 1% per year risk increase. So for most women, it's felt to be very low risk. Exactly. Now, a lot of these women, I have to say this, and I'm a bit of, stick, of a stickler about this, and um, and I'm wondering how you deal with your patients on this. They happen to have, um, you know, they happen to be overweight. They mm-hmm. happen to be significantly overweight. They mm-hmm. happen to be so overweight that sometimes they have issues with mobility. They have large abdomens, and they are afraid of the low-dose localized estrogen, in part because the warning on it uh, is the same as for systemic estrogen. So I have to explain that. But they, how much more of a risk factor is a large abdomen in a yeah. woman uh, during perimenopause. Yeah, quite a bit more for sure. I mean, the risk from the estrogen is probably pretty small, but if you're overweight, as you describe, or, or obese, you know, um, it's it's important to recognize all the health risks that come with it. And there's others, but certainly a huge one is for heart disease. I mean, heart disease is the number one killer of women. And uh, if you're overweight going through perimenopause, perimenopause is the time when as, as women lose their previous fairly high levels of estrogen that they had through their periods in their younger life, the arteries begin to, you know, accumulate cholesterol plaques and damage and all the, you know, atherosclerotic changes that we see in people that men have been slowly but busily accumulating, you know, throughout their life, women sort of start to catch up. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and, and, 
being overweight, it, it tends to cluster with things like uh, a bad cholesterol profile, high levels of LDL, which is the bad cholesterol, mm -hmm. low levels of HDL, which is the good cholesterol, mm -hmm. you know, being uh, sedentary, uh, having high blood pressure, diabetes, and everything else. And so the risks associated with being overweight or obese are substantial. And that is, you know, what your patients that are, that are overweight, that's really what they should be focusing on. And the risk from actually, uh, you know, the estrogen therapy is probably very small compared to all those other risk factors. I mean, if there's any in the local, in the low dose localized, mm -hmm. there's probably no risk, it's, it's uh, maybe very, a yeast it's, infection it's, if it's they have very, too much. Yeah, the risk is negligible. With yes. low dose therapy, it's negligible. Yes. And so how do you deal with your, many years ago when I started in uh, private practice, one of the doctors that I was working with, he said, Duh, don't mention anybody's weight. They're never going to take mm -hmm. it off. And, uh, you know, it's just something that we'll just never be able to combat. And, and I didn't for a long, uh, a number mm -hmm. of years, for a long time. And then, but more recently, if, especially if they've opened a window and I'm uh, able to say it, I may uh, talk to, I'm talking to more women about the importance of taking weight off and, and how quickly sometimes it can be done mm -hmm. in, through different uh, programs, lifestyle programs. How is it that you deal with patients who are significantly overweight and may have had a cardiovascular scare, or uh, what do you, how do you, how does a cardiologist deal with weight in you, patients? You have to be, you know, a nice person, a nice guy, a nice girl to your patients. You have, to, I mean, the the way I've always done it, Maureen, is is I, I'm not like some doctors that will shame their patients or give them a lecture because I mean we're all human and uh, you know a lot of people it's they've always either they've been overweight for a long time or they had a really busy job or a busy life as a mother right. or what have you didn't look after themselves properly didn't have time or they just became that way you know it's it's genetic and it's hard for them to to deal with so I always um, introduce it as as a uh, Basically, I, I focus on it being an opportunity to improve. You know, uh, I would say something like, you know, uh, these, this is what you can do to reduce your risk of heart disease. And I'm, I'm always patient. I always have a bit of a discussion with the patient. So if they ask me about estrogen therapy, you know, I would reassure them, for example, the risk is very low. And then this is what you can do. You know, aim for a modest weight loss every few months or something like that, something you can sustain, build a little bit more physical activity in your life. And I, I'll go through with the patient how much they're doing. And, you know, in, in, our, in our busy life, it's often not enough. And mm -hmm. then any dietary changes that they might want to make, I'll discuss that too, or possibly refer them to a, a dietitian for more concrete advice and, and monitor their caloric intake. Right. So it's, but it's always um, try. It's always important to take a supportive attitude, I think, and uh, paint a positive picture. You know, this is where you are now. You know, uh, but this is what you can do to reduce your risk. And if you can lose this weight, I I, I don't a ask them to do anything too fast. It's always a very gradual thing because they need to maybe realign their lifestyle, have a bit more exercise in there, or make some modest dietary changes that they can stick with on a consistent basis. Absolutely. And I find people receive it well. You know, mm -hmm. they often don't feel well. And, and, and I don't know, I find women want uh, quick results. Mm -hmm. And so there are some of the programs out there that mm -hmm. uh, actually you can reduce your weight by 16 or 20 pounds. Mm -hmm. The other question I have for you is diet versus exercise, mm -hmm. which is, I mean, people will think I can have a bacon double cheeseburger and yeah. then I can have fish and chips and because I am going to the gym tonight. Yeah, that's a, a common <laughs> a common fallacy. I wish I wish that was true because I, I mean, even though Me I'm a cardiologist, too. I like bacon double cheeseburgers. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I would say both are important, but probably by far the more important for weight control is actually your diet, the calories you take in because you've got to exercise so much to burn off you know, this many calories to undo the, what you do. It's so easy to take calories in so hard to get them out, you know, and, and, uh, exercise. I always, I always encourage both and, and recommend both because exercise has other benefits in terms of our arteries and our blood pressure and things like that. But if you really want to regulate your weight, you know, diet is probably step one for sure. And it's, it's, it's got a, you know, you get a much bigger bang for your buck or a bigger result, if you will, 
from from a careful diet. That's right. And speaking of bang for your buck, you'll have a way better sex life. That's uh, right. You know, there just you reminded go. me. That's I'm right. sorry. Just one word. That's, right. That's it. I can't help myself. <laughs> it's all related to sex. You'll be more mobile in the bedroom, it and you always, won't have the same yeah. sex over and over again. Um, That's for sure. That's yes. For sure. So, uh, which will be kind of nice if you're trimmer and you're you know more mobile. Um, now, sugar is another um, demon. And, you know, there's so many foods, processed foods, that, you know, you look at the, at the label and it says, you know, zero fat, 29 yeah. grams of sugar, yep. which is what they, that was a little trick they did in the 60s. And um, that's why America has enlarged to the point of uh, yep. barely fitting in the country anymore. I mean, there, there's a lot of controversy over how much of each nutrient that you should really eat. But for sure, you know, uh, strictly low fat is probably not the best answer. I mean, so much of the food, as you point out, is supplemented with, you know, high fructose corn syrup. And that's a lot of calories going into your into your body for sure. And what we certainly have seen now is that avoiding the fat and just eating tons of sugar doesn't really do any better. I mean, we have an epidemic of type 2 diabetes that exactly. we're facing. And that's probably a big reason for sure. That's right. And a lot of those people with type 2 diabetes will have erectile dysfunction. Mm-hmm. And because it actually thins the arteries there's damage to the endothelium i I understand you know a bit better about that than i do but the blood doesn't flow quite as smoothly as uh well as uh i'm sorry our time is running up it's such great information that you always share with uh, me and the listeners and i thank you so much for joining me anyway when i come back we're going to uh shift things over we're still exercising and we're going to talk with johanna ward about pre and postnatal fitness i am maureen mcgrath you're listening to the cknw sunday night sex show Welcome back. I'm Maureen McGrath, host of the CKNW Sunday Night Sex. Welcome back. I'm Maureen McGrath, host of the CKNW Sunday Night Sex Show. I don't know if I've said that twice or not anyway. I'm a registered nurse, sex therapist, blogger. Uh, lots of great guests on tonight. You can give me a call at 604-280-9898 or star 9898 on your cell. Uh, you can download the free app here if you'd like to listen about this. Um, I'm a registered nurse, as I said. Uh, you may or may not know that I was the head nurse at one point in my career uh, of the maternal and child program at one of the community hospitals that included labor and delivery, postpartum, special care nursery, and pediatrics. Yes. Um, so... We delivered a lot of babies, probably a couple of thousand a year. But some of the terminology is uh, is changing around that, and that was brought to my attention recently when I was reading some guidelines from the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists and the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine. I remember when I was working there that some women would want to plan their C-section. So they wanted, they didn't want to gain too much weight. So they wanted it to, to have it, their C-section at around 37 weeks or 38 weeks instead of the 40 weeks, the traditional uh, time when uh, we think of as term for babies. Um, well, the new guidelines actually redefine this because some of the research shows that babies between the gestational age of 37 and uh, 37 to 39 weeks actually their brains are still growing, and their liver is still growing, and their lungs as well. So the baby is going through a crucial period of growth between the time of 37 and 39 weeks. So early term is now considered to be 37 weeks through 38 weeks and 6 days. Full term is 39 weeks through 40 weeks and 6 days. And then late term is 41 weeks 
and to, through to 41 weeks and six days, and then post-term is 42 weeks and beyond. So these are uh, this is important to pay attention to because the babies who do the best are those who are born between weeks 39 and 40 weeks. Anyway, so they're also more or less less more less likely to spend time in the special care nursery or the neonatal intensive care unit. Um, uh, when they are born at the appropriate time. So that's very important. Uh, weight is a big issue for women who are pregnant and certainly postpartum as well. And here to talk to me and to you about the importance of uh, weight uh, before you deliver your baby and after is Johanna Ward. She's a personal trainer and a pre- and postnatal fitness intru- instructor. Welcome to the show, Johanna. Thanks for coming into the studio. Thanks so much, Maureen, for having me. Yeah, so... Um, Anyway, so tell me, uh, this is a vital time in a woman's life. A lot of women are concerned about weight gain and not gaining too much weight uh, during pregnancy. They may not feel well. They may have nausea. They may have hyperemesis gravidarum. They may, uh, it may be too hot for women who are maybe in their 30th or, you know, 35th week of pregnancy, given all the weather that we've had. So why is exercise important in the prenatal time, the time before somebody delivers a baby? Well, it's very important to exercise throughout the entire pregnancy before and after, even if you're not currently exercising. What they suggest now, if you don't have an exercise program and find out that you're pregnant, then you should start one. And I think that that's something that's been changed too. I think before I was like, well, if I haven't been exercising, then I'm just not going to exercise at all and I'm just going to hang out and grow this baby. That's right. Yeah. So that's that's very interesting, actually. So it's very important that uh, new moms or new moms to be remain active during pregnancy as well. It just shows you just how much exercise, how vital it is in all of our lives and at every stage of our lives. It's so important and it really does make us feel better too. So it's of course really important from a health perspective and from a mental health perspective. It makes a big difference for the women. Um, I find it's also part of that social network. They get a lot of support from the other women in class and the men in class. People are really excited. Uh, but I do find for the prenatal classes, so I teach a regular group fitness classes and many of the moms will still come to that. Oftentimes, though, we don't see them during those first couple months because that's when the nausea is at its peak. That's right. when it is really challenging and they're super tired, fatigue's really hard. And I think that that's fine. Listen to your body at that time. Then once you start to feel better after about month three, then you can really get back into it. Um, the biggest thing, though, that they say is they tend to stop the jumping a little bit because it puts a lot of pressure on the bladder, of makes course. it less pleasant to work out. <laughs> and you want to do pelvic floor exercises during your pregnancy. You definitely do, yes. And, and we often don't remind women to do that during pregnancy. Uh, we forget about the pelvic floor. We do. We do. You don't, and I no, don't. No, we don't, okay, but we others don't. do. <laughs> we all. We're yeah. never forgetting about that pelvic floor. No, no. the key to the door of the pelvic floor. Um, yeah, so that's very important that women isolate and to isolate the correct muscle, you want to squeeze your rectal muscle. Is that correct? That is correct. Yes. yes. And we had a great discussion, you and I, about that last week. Um, yes. So I've been sharing that with all of my classes, not just with the women who have are prenatal or postnatal, but with everybody because it is really important for our overall health. Excellent. And now should women uh, check with their doctor or their midwife um, before starting an exercise program? You definitely want to check with both your medical practitioner, your midwife. Also, at any fitness facility, there's a specific PARQ form to fill out for pregnancy. Okay. What you want to do, you want to let your fitness instructors know if you're going to a regular class or if you have a trainer, check in with them. And you can do that privately. Of course, it's all confidential, but it is important because there's a few things um, that we do differently. So for prenatal, at a certain point, you don't want to be laying on your back anymore doing exercises. You always want to be in an assisted position. Um, also, 
also things with the jumping. Most of the exercise that you can continue doing right up until um, until your body tells you not to. And that's really what most importantly to listen to. Right. And you can actually uh, modify it as you go along as well. So it can be a lighter program. You also. can definitely modify it. But you want to keep in mind that your life is about to change and you want to be changing with it. So you're going to be having a baby. You're going to be picking up a lot and carrying around and you're going to have a lot more strain uh, through the shoulders, that forward rounding that we talk more about these days with like the texting posture or yes. the desk posture. You get that too with baby because you're leaning forward a lot. So remembering in prenatal and also postnatal to be working more on the muscles of the back um, between the shoulder blades a lot more of what you say pulling versus pushing exercises and then postpartum so after people have had women have had their babies they, they may have body image issues a lot of women gain a fair bit of weight you know they can gain I think the recommendation is like 25 to 30 pounds um, but some might gain 60 or 70 you know they can't help it um, and so their bodies have changed afterward and that will impact the sexual health in the bedroom or the sexuality, sexual self-esteem. And it's interesting to note that according to some research studies, the most common time that a partner of a um, the partner will have an affair or will cheat on a woman is during the first year of life after the baby is born. I know. Thumbs down. Absolutely. <laughs> I, yeah. The things we I want to say right about. now, I'm <laughs> not allowed. You're going to, yeah, I'm not allowed to say. Well, you have to understand right that now. men need sex and it's a biological urge. And so if we have some um, empathy and compassion, but women may feel poorly about their body. Yeah. Uh, they may have a, even though their partner may still think they're wonderful and beautiful and say that and love that, but it's about a woman and how she feels about that with the excess weight or the breast being so enlarged or engorged perhaps. It's that. It's also, I mean, there's vaginal dryness, there are the different hormones and things going on. So your sex drive does go down. You're fatigued. I mean, a lot of these women are not getting very much sleep at all. There's a lot of changes there. And of course, you know, there's the baby blues and then there's postpartum depression. Um, two very different issues but both very serious and should That's be dealt right. with baby blues though a couple days and will pass postpartum you definitely want to be tapped into that tuned into your social network um, I'm a big believer in fitness for the social aspect as well I teach postnatal classes so stroller fit a lot of people have seen them down I do the ones at Creekside Olympic Village but also uh, Melanie who's the creator of Fit for Two does them at the Roundhouse you see these women out there and it's great and they're getting a workout and they're sweating but they're also talking to each other about what's happening with their baby somebody just rolled over this happened it's it's really social and i think that that's really important what stroller is better and it's a absolutely network. and it's about relationships and yeah. that's you know we're, we're human beings and and one of the most important aspects of being a human being is the relationships that we secure yeah. and have and and have as support throughout our lives and it's yeah. really interesting to the moms that come in and it's their second child getting to hear them share their advice with the new moms that are on first baby um, right. and some of them come in and they're really tired the biggest thing for postnatal fitness is again to listen to your body show up just try and show up and get there but don't jump back into it it's more about easing into the fitness because huge changes have just happened in your body so respect and honor that and don't even really think so much about losing weight during this time because you're also breastfeeding if you well if you're breastfeeding then you need to be nourishing your body and you want to be thinking more about what you're putting into your body and, and keeping that healthy and working out for your health not because we're trying to get to some ideal weight exactly. during that time for that first year at least exactly johanna it's always a pleasure to see you and oh, thank you, you so much for sharing i made it this whole way without saying vagina are you proud of me <laughs> 
Absolutely. I can't believe it. <laughs> I've said vagina a thousand times. I always have to warn people. I'm going to use words like vagina and penis in this talk. You okay with that? <laughs> but uh, okay yes, excellent. Well, thank you so much. Always great to see you. We'll have you back for sure and uh, talk a little bit more about your fitness program. So where can people uh, sign up for your programs? Uh, you can find out about all the classes at my website, The It Factor. That's IT dot C-A. And you are the It Factor. That's Joanna Ward, and I am Maureen McGrath, and you're listening to the CKNW Sunday Night Sex Show. <laughs> Welcome back. I'm Maureen McGrath. You're listening to the CKNW Sunday Night Sex Show. Thanks for joining me tonight, and thanks for staying if you're if you're still here. Thanks for that staying power. Um, you know, and you're, you're going to find this hard to believe, but uh, one of the most, if you've listened to my program before, or if you've met me, uh, or if I've seen you as a patient, uh, one of the most difficult things for me to do is to actually share a personal story. I am intensely private, but I also appreciate that it is one of the most empowering things you can do for yourself and you can do to help others. I am really, truly honored tonight to have John Neuenberg return to the show tonight. Uh, John is a business and executive coach, and he provided, gave, inspired so many people with the most profound TEDx talk I have listened to in a long time. He did that in Stanley Park in May. I have to say, when I heard the first line, the word out of my mouth was, wow, I laughed, I cried. I learned, I loved, I thought it was fantastic. John, thank you so much for coming here and, and agreeing to share this ever so personal story. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Oh, well, it's great. That's and kind of ironic. It is. <laughs> <laughs> yes. We like irony here. Um, your story is about uh, changing how we look at uh, mental illness and in particular suicide and dying by suicide. And I learned that terminology from you. Thank mm. you very much. It's no wonder people say I have great guests. Um, so, uh, you know, what, what this, this TED Talk, which is on YouTube now, um, was amazing. And uh, what was that like for you? I mean, you came right out of the gates with it. Yeah, well, it's a good way to get someone's attention, right? It certainly is, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Got mine. <laughs> so what... Um what you're referring to is that uh, I introduced myself by saying that it was in May of 2011 that I attempted suicide. And, um, yeah, uh, <clears throat> as a result of a long period of depression, which um, at the time, in hindsight, I now recognize that I've had bouts of depression but never been diagnosed and was, of course, as a result of um, attempting suicide. Um, suicide often, you know, has a lot of stigma attached to it. It's difficult to talk about. Generally, we don't talk about it. We, you know, it's kind of quote-unquote air quotes here, dirty laundry. And uh, so it's been very interesting for me. One of the um, uh, outcomes of the talk is the number of people that have um, spontaneously come up to me and talked to me about their circumstances. The uh, statistics are that <clears throat> at any given time, 10% of the 10% of people know someone personally, who in the last 12 months has made an attempt or been successful at uh, suicide. <clears throat> so it's much more prevalent than we give credence to. And uh, because we don't talk about it, we don't really, um, we don't do the best we can at um, 
uh, making care treatment health and support accessible and that would of course make um, suicide and the impact that it has on families and on our society much um, uh, diminished to, to, to decrease the impact that it has on families and society. Absolutely. And so many uh, people die by suicide in this city alone, and, and often that is hidden or that is a, a secret shame of many families mm. because there still is a stigma with mental illness. Uh, depression is associated by some people as a weakness, mm. um, and some people feel that way themselves because they feel that they're going to be judged by other people. You mentioned that you, in retrospect, uh, since you attempted suicide, um, you realized you had depression. Was that your entire life? The first time that I uh, can think about it now is about 14 or 15 years old. <clears throat> is that um, right? Yeah, although I'd, I'd never contemplated, considered, or did anything remotely. Um, ideation is the term. I've never, um, up until that episode in May, had that um, experience. Had that thought. And um, and you had bouts of depression through um, from age 15? Yeah. Through yeah, to three your... or four or five significant bouts, I would say. Okay. Yeah. And, and how did that impact your life? Um, With your job and relationships and... You know, it's difficult because um, when you're uh, experiencing depression, that's your context. That's what you're experiencing, and it's hard to say how does that compare to what it could have or should have been. Yeah, um, fair enough. Um, and the other thing I would say about it is that uh, even though I was experiencing depression, I don't know that a lot of people knew about it. Um, so I was very good at, you know, um, I would say I was very high-functioning and uh, able to conduct you know, normal business, normal things, and and uh, but it was a you know, a, a way I, I was able to kind of um, compartmentalize it in a way that it was very isolated around one um, dimension of what I was doing. But as I, you know, in the last six or so weeks or eight weeks before my attempt, I was very much more isolated and isolating myself. And did I, people notice that? Did your friends and family notice no. that you were isolating? No. no. And and it's a physical illness. Did you, did you feel physically unwell also? Some people describe it as their feet, are, both feet are in quicksand, and each step they're trying to pull out of the quicksand. Uh, I think that's a good metaphor. Mm -hmm. I, I certainly did feel uh, um, that I didn't have any uh, control over my circumstances or situation. You do find yourself disempowered uh, and it it can metaphorically feel like your feet are stuck in sand and you know you're unable to do anything and even though while I I was very aware of what I could be doing in some fashion or another I didn't have the capacity to do it and did you plan this for some time prior to I'm a planner you're a planner, yes. Yeah. You're very methodical. I know that organized. about you. Organized, absolutely. Yes, yeah. inviting me, <laughs> sending me an invitation to my own sex show. That was a first. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, how do you? How can? How can we do this better? You know, unfortunately, we're we're going to be close, to running out of time. But we're going to have to. I'm going to have to have you back routinely to discuss this in in more detail. Um, how can? How can we take the stigma? Uh, away from from this, how can we? I mean, talking about it is one one way for sure. Yeah, um, in the talk, I offered three suggestions. So the first of which is to mind our language. Um, the U.S. Um, Institute of Medicine has a, a list of 250 labels people use to stigmatize those with mental illness. So the first thing we can do is just become more mindful of the language we use, which right. often has 
um, implicit uh, stigmas attached to that. So that's number one. Number two is to become more knowledgeable, to educate ourselves, and um, uh, and get away from some of the you know uh, assumptions that we've made in the past. And then the third thing, which is what we're doing here today, is to talk about it. You know, the elephant in the room is is the metaphor for never talking about the things that we should be talking about. And the best way to deal with an elephant is to name it. You know, most of the time when we name the elephant, most of the power of the elephant uh, disappears. And so by simply um, talking about it and, uh, and talking about uh, mental illness and suicide is part of life and it's part of normal life. It's not the normal life, but it is part of uh, living as a human. And so the best way to cope with it then is to get it out of the closet, so to speak. Absolutely. I mean, it's just like a broken leg or a headache. I mean, it's a different degree, you know, it, and it can certainly come in different forms, um, but it's certainly a medical issue and a medical problem. And it strikes so many people at many different men and women alike. And you can't really choose who, you know, you don't really know who's going to have this. I don't know if there was a family history in your family, if you even knew what it was. There's evidence. Um, it, it's um, it's not clear if um, depression runs in families. Or um, what I what I would say is there's a pattern that depression can be in certain families. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it's anything to do with um, uh, our genetics. Uh, rather, I think it's a pattern of how um, the circumstances of how we're raised, or you know, the conditions of that existed at the time. So, the, kind of the in, environmental factors, right, plays a big role in that. Yeah. Yes, and I know anxiety, like um, you know, can be caught. Really, it's it's almost contagious if if kids are brought up in uh, in a very anxious world, they can certainly catch. Yeah, that as you well. know, that's interesting. You talk about that. Um, there is a thought in the community, in the mental awareness, suicide awareness community, that suicide is contagious. Again, I'm using air quotes. Um, and that by drawing attention to it, that that uh, encourages or somehow enables people to um, consider suicide. Um, studies have shown, though, that uh, what actually happens is people, it, it grew out of a circumstance in Switzerland where um, uh, as a result of some public awareness and media attention to uh, a suicide incident where someone jumped in front of a train, and as a result of that, uh, for a period after that, there were many incidents of people um, dying by suicide as a result of uh, jumping in front of a train. So they, they use the same methodology. But what's, what's um, become clearer is that what actually shifts is what, how people attempt suicide rather than the actual number of suicides. The actual number is relatively stable. Okay, yeah. And, you know, you bring up a good point. You remind me of something. I, I have been very comfortable through my nursing career asking people if they are having suicidal ideation or if you're feeling suicidal, and that's okay to ask a, uh, a person who has suicidal ideation. Some people are afraid. They think they're going to put the idea in their head, and that's not the evidence. Absolutely. It's it, um, And a, an even nicer way of doing it is to say something like, people in your circumstances sometimes think about yes. suicide. Is absolutely. that something you're thinking about now? Yes, absolutely. And so you kind of um, create an arm's length or a detached way of describing it. And sometimes people kind of open the door and, right. and are, feel uh, enabled to talk about it then. Yeah. Well, it's all excellent advice. Thank you so much. And thanks so much for sharing your personal story. It's, uh, it takes tremendous courage. And uh, namaste, my friend. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I'm Maureen McGrath. And when I come back, I'm going to tell you what's coming up next week. You're listening to the CKNW Sunday Night Sex Show. 
Welcome back. Uh, I want to thank all of my guests uh, tonight, Dr. John Weisler, Johanna Ward, and uh, John Neuenberg. And uh, if you do want to see that TEDx talk, you can YouTube uh, the TEDx talk, John, and it's... Um, uh, you can find it on the TEDx Stanley Park YouTube channel mm-hmm. and uh, or um, uh, search for on YouTube, search for the uh, cultural taboos of suicide and mental illness. And it's, believe me, a worthy viewing, and I suggest that everybody uh, watch that. Um, so, uh, like great sex, it ends a little too soon. Uh, <laughs> um, so next week... James and Cindy are the owners of ITL Ventures, which operates a network of sex-positive websites catering to people who are curious about exploring their sexuality in a safe and social way. So one of their websites, which is called In IntoThatLifestyle.com is one of North America's largest social networks for people who are in the lifestyle, if you know what I'm saying, or are just curious to learn more about it. They also host a popular weekly podcast with the same name and speak to subjects that are lifestyle and relationship related. I'm not sure if you're getting what I'm saying, but anyway, you're going to learn more about that lifestyle next week. They've also been on Playboy Radio. That's not something I can have on my resume, but uh, I certainly don't have that on there, but they do. And James is also a best-selling author, so I hope you'll join me next week in the meantime uh you can uh, follow me on twitter or uh just google my name and it'll all come up i'm maureen mcgrath you're listening to the cknw sunday night sex show